Well, just before we dig into our passage, we had a blue slip question last week. Uh, we were in the book of Hosea for the last few weeks uh, before, and we have this system where we can ask questions on the blue tearaway slips and sort of give in details of questions there. The question was last week, I understand that Hosea's marriage to Gomer is used as a metaphor for God and Israel. But to what extent is it useful for us understanding how to view or treat unfaithfulness in marriage? It's quite a tough question. Um, I want to make two points, really. One is that uh, we do learn a little bit about unfaithfulness in marriage uh, from Hosea. We see how Hosea was able to take his wife back, even after she'd been unfaithful, uh, which shows that that's not impossible. It doesn't necessarily have to break a marriage, though uh, in some cases it can. But I think what I want to say is we've got to be careful about taking too many lessons uh, from the book of Hosea in terms of marriage. Uh, So if you can imagine if Hosea was writing a dating book, you know, go out and marry a prostitute, probably not going to be a thing that we will do. Uh, Buying people back from slavery is not a general thing that we would do. So I just want to be, so we want to be careful about how we uh, take lessons from it, but we can get some. But it's better to take clearer passages uh, from the New Testament that talk about that. Uh, and if you want to come back to me on that, do chat to me afterwards or uh, write another blue slip, put it in the wooden box uh, at the back. So we're into uh, Hebrews chapter 7 now. You'll find it helpful to have it open in front of you. In the large print Bibles, it's page 1106. In the small print, it's 582. I wonder, does it ever feel, uh, as you read the Bible that it's a million miles away from your own experience and where you are. Uh, There's obscure Old Testament characters, arguments about priests and legal systems, and it can seem like it's just a million miles away from our day-to-day experience as a Christian. And our passage this morning sounds a bit like that, doesn't it? Uh, There's all these uh, talk of Melchizedek. Who's Melchizedek? There's talks about legal systems and priests. And we're going to be left asking the question this morning all the way through. So what? On one level, it's not that hard to understand what he's saying. But we might be left thinking, well, so? What does that mean for me and my life, my experience? And it will help us this morning to put ourselves in the shoes of the first readers. See, the first readers of the book of Hebrews were being tempted back into first century Judaism. Now you're going to be saying again, well that's not very much like my experience at all. But we need to think what first century Judaism was. And just a few things that they did that I think that we might be tempted into. The first thing is that they took the Bible and they added to it human religion. They got the Bible and said, well that's a good system, there's some good rules there, but we're going to add all this other stuff on top of it. And we're going to say, actually we're going to use the law in the Old Testament, that's what makes us right with God. Not faith, but law. So they added human religion to the Bible. Now that's something as human beings that we can all be tempted to do, isn't it? It's something we could be tempted back into. To think of Christianity as just a set of rules that we must follow. And if we do right, then God's right with us. But that's not what the Bible teaches, is it? But they were being tempted back into this legal system. The second thing first century Judaism did was it rejected Jesus as the ultimate revelation of God. So they they might have said, oh, well, Jesus is something, but he's not all that important. And again, this is something that we can be tempted into. We can sort of downplay Jesus. We can make him less than God. We can make him less than the Bible says that he is. 
you know, well, I believe in Jesus, but maybe not, not to the extent of the way the Bible puts that Jesus is. The third thing for first century Judaism is it represented the reader's old way of life. It was what they'd come from, as well as what they were being tempted back to. And that can be true for us as well, can't, can't it? We're not tempted back into first century Judaism, but we can be tempted back into our old life, whatever that was before. We can be tempted to go back on where we've got to. And then the last thing about first century Judaism is that ultimately it was ineffective. It didn't work. It didn't bring people near to God. In fact, it actually took people further away as they thought it was all about law keeping and the other things that we've mentioned. So the author of Hebrews then, all the way through this book, is trying to show them how Jesus is greater. How Jesus is better than any of the Old Testament things that they've had. And as we meet this point in Hebrews, so far we've had Jesus versus the prophets. As we've seen, no, actually Jesus is a greater revelation. We've had Jesus versus angels. But we've seen that Jesus is actually better than the angels. We've had Jesus versus Moses, that great character from the Old Testament. But actually... Jesus is greater than Moses as well. Joshua. And now this week we meet this character, Melchizedek. And you might be thinking, well, it's not easy. It's easy enough, isn't it, to say Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. Most of us probably haven't really heard of him much. But actually, the person that he's got in mind, really, through Melchizedek, is that Jesus is greater than Abraham. And if you think about how Abraham was viewed, actually, this is a massive claim for the author to make. So, again though, this is all very interesting, but so what? Well, as we go through, we're going to be asking one other question as well. We're going to be asking, so what if this wasn't true? That's a helpful way if you've got a so what question. What if this wasn't true? Sometimes as we ask that question, we can really appreciate what God has done for us. As Joni Mitchell sang, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. You only really know what you have when it's not there. So we're going to be asking that of the passage as we go through all the way through. Uh, Elaine's going to read to us now from Genesis chapter 14. There's only two mentions of uh, Melchizedek in the Old Testament. This is one of them, just to give us a bit of background. I do have the page numbers. Uh, If you're in the small Bibles, uh, it's page 6. If you're in the large Bibles, it's page 11. So Genesis 14, 17 to 20, and Elaine will read it to us. After his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And that's basically Melchizedek. Uh, But the first uh, first section that we've got picks up on that. And uh, this morning I thought I'd shake it up a bit, so we've got some pictures uh, as well as points, because I was thinking more visually this week. Uh, so, first point is that Melchizedek is a picture of Jesus. That's verses 1 to 3. Melchizedek is a picture uh, of Jesus. What we're seeing here is that Melchizedek is a type, is a shadow of Jesus. 
And what I mean by that is you can sort of see the outline of Jesus in the person of Melchizedek. God has painted this person, even though it's only three verses, into the fabric of history and into the pages of the Bible to tell us about Jesus. Now, it's our contention that the whole Bible is there to point us to Jesus. So in what way is Melchizedek a picture of Jesus? Well, back there in Hebrews, in chapter 7, verse 1, we're told that he's the king uh, of righteousness. The king of righteousness. Now, all names have meanings. Does anyone know what my name means, Christopher? I've had this conversation with quite a few of you over the years. Bearer of Christ. Okay. Uh, what about Andrew? Everyone likes that Andrew. You know what Andrew means? Man. Manly. Manly. I've never met an Andrew who doesn't like to know that. Uh, <laughs> Calvin, my son, means... Oh, yeah, I'll take Go on, Calvin. Small, bald one. Yes, please don't tell him that as he grows up. Uh, but that's what the name means. Everybody's name has a meaning. And what it's saying here is that Melchizedek... Uh, that's a, a Hebrew word, literally means king of righteousness. And he's saying that king of righteousness, that's a picture of who Jesus is. We're familiar, I probably think, with the New Testament that Jesus is a king, but he's also the righteous one. If you have a look on the back of your notice sheet, you'll see there uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, looking forward to Jesus. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forward. Or Jeremiah 23.5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as a king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness. Again, Zechariah 9 verse 9. Behold... Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. And then in the New Testament, uh, Acts chapter 3, verse 14. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder, murderer to be granted to you. We see that Jesus is the king of righteousness. He was that righteous king that was promised in the Old Testament. And he imparts righteousness, a righteousness by faith that we'll see all the way through the book of Hebrews. So just as Melchizedek meant king of righteousness, well, Jesus is truly the king of righteousness. We also find out that he's a king of peace. Now, Melchizedek was king of Salem. Now, the name Salem means something as well. So does anyone know what Otley means, for example? I'll, I'll tell you. Hmm? Otter's field. So somebody called Otter, a bit like Otto, I imagine. Uh, their field that they had. Ilkley, anyone? It's from the, the word lecan, meaning rock. So it's probably to do with a cow on the calf up on the hill. Burley, anyone? No? Uh, fortified manor and a field. Burley, uh, apparently. Names mean something anyway for both names. But Salem meant peace. That's what it means, like shalom, uh, like salam as uh, it is in Arabic. It was almost certainly referring to Jerusalem. Uh, it's got that name at the end. But it says then, because he's king of Salem, they can say figuratively that he's a king of peace. And it's interesting he's a king of peace, isn't it? Because actually, the only thing we know about Melchizedek is he took part in a battle uh, back in Genesis 
14. But really by saying he's a king of peace, he's not really wanting to tell us much about Melchizedek, but he's wanting to tell us about Jesus. It's not Jesus, the prince of peace. Again, Isaiah 9 verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Or Ephesians 2.14. For he himself, that's Jesus, is our peace. And Romans 16. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You see there in that last one actually, that's linked with battle against the serpent. He's able to be the king of peace because he's crushed the serpent. And Jesus too has defeated our enemies. He can be the king of peace. The next thing we find out about Melchizedek is he has no beginning or end. Uh, You see that there in verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God. He continues, a priest forever. Now the Bible is full of lots of genealogies. If you've had a, a look through the Bible, you see there's always, you know, so-and-so is so-and-so's parents who begat so-and-so and all those sorts of things. In the Bible, it really mattered who your parents were and your grandparents and your great-grandparents and your great-great-grandparents. But Melchizedek, here in the Bible, he has no genealogy. We're not told who his parents are. We're not told who his children are. We're just told that he's there. Now, it's not saying that he literally had no father and mother. It's not saying he sort of spontaneously popped into existence. But the Bible, by not having a genealogy for him, sort of gives the impression that he came from nowhere. No beginning, no end. Now, Jesus, he literally did have no beginning and no end. There was never a time when he was not. He's eternal. And there will never be a time when he will be not. Will not be. I think that's the right way around. He has no end. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the the A and the Z. He has no beginning and he has no end. And he's a priest forever. And it says Melchizedek. There is a picture. He's like the Son of God. Do you see that there again in verse 3? But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Notice that it's that way round. So Melchizedek was made to resemble Jesus, not Jesus, Melchizedek. Because the son really is eternal. He was there before Melchizedek, even though Melchizedek was probably born about 2000 BC. It's not as though God looked at Melchizedek and said, oh, that will be a useful illustration to explain about Jesus. No, actually, God put him in history to look like Jesus. Jesus was already there. So God the Father looked at God the Son and made Melchizedek like him. He put him in history to help us understand Jesus. A priest in time to help us understand our forever priest, the Lord Jesus. So this is all interesting, isn't it? But so what? Well, we're going to ask that question, what if it wasn't true? What if Melchizedek wasn't really a picture of Jesus? Well, I want to say that we'd have a much blander and a much smaller Jesus. God has given us wonderful pictures in the Old Testament to show us more about the Lord Jesus. There's Melchizedek, 
There's Joseph, there's David, there's the Passover lamb, there's the temple, there's Aaron, there's Moses, there's Zerubbabel, if you know who he is. All of these are wonderful pictures to help us understand Jesus better. It's not as though we only hear about Jesus in the New Testament. And if we didn't have these pictures, we'd have a much blander understanding of Jesus. But with Melchizedek here, we've got this wonderful picture of a priest who's also a king. In the Bible, those things don't generally mix. But we see it here in Melchizedek, and we see that it can happen. And we begin to see these wonderful things of our king of peace, our king of righteousness. So we can begin to see Jesus more clearly as we look at Melchizedek. So Jesus, uh, there, Melchizedek is a picture uh, of Jesus. Our second point is that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. That's supposed to be big Melchizedek, little Abraham. Uh, Let me read to you verses 4 to 10. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. The point here is that Abraham gave Melchizedek a tithe. Now a tithe is is 10% of of your income, if you like, or 10% of something that you had. Abraham had just won a mighty battle. And he shares the spoils of his victory with Melchizedek. He gives him a tenth. And his point about that is that really then, the children of Israel, they sort of gave their tithe through him. It's as though he's even greater than the Israelites. Because the Israelites, they gave their tithe to the tribe of Levi. Under the law of Moses, they were obliged to give 10% of their income. But here we see, actually, through Abraham, they are giving their tithes to Melchizedek. So, it's complicated if we push it too far, because it says that he was in the loins of his ancestor, if you like, in there in verse 10. But it's as though through Abraham, even Levi, the one who received tithes from everyone, gives his tithe to Melchizedek. And the point of it being, how great must Melchizedek be? If the guy who receives tithes gives tithes to this guy, how great must he be? And the author makes exactly that same point. Uh, Do you see it there in verse 7? It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So we know, don't we, the father blesses a son, the king blesses a subject, and here Melchizedek blesses Abraham. It's a bit like, uh, I don't know if you watch Sherlock Holmes, uh, and there's a character of Sherlock Holmes, and he's really, really clever. But he's also got this even cleverer older brother, Mycroft. And as we look at Abraham, we're supposed to think, wow, Abraham is this amazing figure in the Old Testament, father of the Israelites. Amazing faith, all these wonderful things. But oh, by the way, there's this other guy who's even greater than him. 
So I wonder if I'd asked you at the beginning, you know, who's the greatest character in the Old Testament? I imagine a few of us would have said Abraham. But actually here he's saying Melchizedek is even greater than Abraham. Even though he gets three verses, he's a bigger guy. He's like Mycroft, even cleverer older brother. He's bigger than even Abraham, the great patriarch. He even mentions that he's a patriarch. It sounds even more grand. So if we put our two points together, if we see the first point that Melchizedek is a picture of Jesus, and Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, well think about it, if the mere picture of Jesus, the mere visual aid of Jesus, is bigger than Abraham and Levi, how great must Jesus be? How much bigger must Jesus be? Because he's even greater than Melchizedek. Melchizedek's there just to point us to him. And if Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, then Jesus is far greater than Abraham and Levi. Which is pretty amazing, isn't it? But again, so what? That's really interesting. But what if this wasn't true? What if Jesus wasn't greater than Abraham? Well, we'd all have to be Jews. That's the first point. We'd have to be Jews. Because what would matter wouldn't be our relationship with Jesus. It would be our relationship with Abraham, since he'd be the superior guy. So what would matter would be being Jewish or sort of attaching yourself to the Jewish people. Now, interestingly, of course, in Hebrews, that's what they're tempted back into. They're tempted back into uh, the Jewish way of life. But we don't have to be Jews because Jesus is even greater than Abraham. The other thing that we'd, we'd have is that we'd have to have Levite priests. We'd have to have uh, people from the tribe of Levi, as the old order would still stand. Levi would, would be greater than Melchizedek, and Jesus would be inferior to Levi. So as Jews, we'd need Levites to offer sacrifices, to read us the law. Uh, we'd have to go to the temple in Jerusalem uh, to go and worship there. But worse than even that sort of situation, we'd have nothing to look forward to. We'd have not the things that they looked forward to, sorry. The sacrifices that we'd give would be useless. Because those were looking forward to a greater one. The law that we had would be powerless. Because it's only able to condemn. The temple would be meaningless because it looked forward to Jesus. The real place that we meet with God. That we meet him face to face. So in short, if this wasn't true, then we'd, just, we'd have to go with an empty version of Old Testament religion with no promise for the future. We'd have no personal relationship with God because it would have to be mediated through a Levite priest. We'd have no forgiveness of sins because the sacrifices wouldn't work. We'd have no access to God. We'd just have one guy going into the temple every year. So our religion would become obeying laws and journeying yearly to Jerusalem. So in other words, if Jesus was not greater than Abraham, then we may as well pack up and go home. Because there's no good news. But doesn't then this remind you what we do have? We have the one to whom the whole Old Testament pointed. The ultimate priest, the ultimate sacrifice. The one who's opened up a way to the Father. We have amazing privileges because Jesus is greater than Abraham. We have personal relationship with God. But it does pose a bit of a question, this. What about the priests in the Old Testament? 
Because where do they fit in now? Okay, Jesus is greater, but does that mean we should still have them? Well, the author now moves on to the other place where Melchizedek is mentioned, Psalm 110. Uh, Elaine's going to read us that. It's on page 564 uh, in the larger Bibles and 292 uh, in the smaller ones. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Thanks, Elaine. So the next part of this section picks up on Psalm 110, which, as you can see, only mentions him once. And that's the lot for the rest of the Bible uh, on Melchizedek. But what it's saying here uh, in this last section, we're going to look at uh, verses 11 to 22 uh, in Hebrews. What it's really saying is that the order of Melchizedek has set aside the order of Levi. So it's as if Jesus is showing them the door. That was what that was supposed to be. My graphics aren't that good. Um, but what it's really saying is he's shown them the door, he's set them aside. And really the argument is that a promised priesthood sets aside the old priesthood. So if you look at verse 11 in uh, Hebrews, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? So what he's saying is that if there was nothing wrong with the old priesthood, the Levites, why would God promise a new priesthood? Why would he promise another one? And if there's a new one promised, then the old one is on the way out. Now think about it with uh, politics. You know, when the the prime ministers said they're going to resign, they become a bit of a lame duck, don't they? It's always, well, who's the next person going to be? Because if if you know that, if people know that you're going then really you've become obsolete. The same arguments used in uh, just over the page in Hebrews 8, verse 13, to speak about the old covenant. So in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The old priesthood, he's saying, is, is on the way out. It's like my iPad. I've got an iPad here. Uh, pretty much as soon as I bought it, it was on the way out. Uh, I knew at some point that I'd have to replace it because, well, that's what happens with technology, isn't it? As soon as you've got one, they release a new one and you know that one's the one that's going to get all the upgrades and everything and your one is, you know, obsolete. So really, from the time that this new model of priesthood is announced, he's saying that the old one is on the way out. And a promised new priesthood means the end of the old Levitical law. That's the law that related to the priests. He's saying really in that passage that the law and the priests are sort of bound together. They come as a package. 
A change in the priesthood means a change in the war as well. The old law said you could only be a priest if you were from the tribe of Levi. But Jesus, of course, wasn't from the tribe of Levi. He was from the tribe of Judah. So there needs to be a new law for him to be a priest. Because Jesus is not a Levite. So if we were just going on the basis of the Old Testament Moses law, he couldn't be a priest. But Jesus' priesthood is not based on legal jargon and things. You see that there? Um, In verse 6, sorry, not in verse 6, um, in verse 15. This becomes more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but on the basis of an indestructible life. He's saying he's, he's not a priest based on the law, he's a priest based on his resurrection. Only he could actually be the forever priest in uh, Psalm 110 because he's the only one that's defeated death. There's only one person who could fit that role and it's the Lord Jesus. So his priesthood is not based on his descent but on his power over death. We also see that his priesthood brings a better hope. Do you see that there in verses 18 and 19? For on the one hand a former commandment is set aside Because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced. Through which we draw near to God. He's saying the best that the old priesthood could offer was weak and useless priests. If you think that's harsh, read the Old Testament. Try and find me a good priest uh, in the Old Testament. But Jesus' priesthood brings a better hope by which we can draw near to God. Because... Only the priests in the Old Testament could draw near to God. But here now we can all draw near to God. We can have a personal relationship with the Lord of the universe. It says that we can draw near. Now often we think about drawing near as prayer, don't we? We talk about, you know, let's draw near to God and pray. But really it's bigger than that. It's talking about the whole of our relationship with God. Now that is shown in our prayer lives, isn't it? If we claim to have a personal relationship with God but we never speak to him, that would be a very strange personal relationship, wouldn't it? But drawing near signifies our whole relationship. No longer far away. No barriers between us. No distance between us. So no wonder he calls it a better hope. We have the kind of access to God that in the Old Testament, even the priests and the kings didn't. So it's no, nothing short, really, that it says that he is the priest of a better Covenant. Do you see that right at the very end? The priest of a better covenant. Now he's made a priest uh, in a covenant with an oath. We see that in Psalm 110. Old Testament priests swore oath to God as well. But here, God swears the oath to him. Do you notice that? That's why we read Psalm 110. Normally, in the Old Testament, the priest would swear an oath to God. But here, God swears an oath to him. You are a priest forever. That's God addressing Jesus, God the Father. So how much better is this priest that God himself makes the oath to him and not the other way around? How much better is this? So we have something better. Better than Abraham, better than the Old Testament priests. And this point will carry on over the next few weeks. But again, so what? 
Well, what if this wasn't true? Well, it would mean that Jesus couldn't be a priest. If the old law hadn't been set aside, if this new priesthood wasn't coming, Jesus couldn't be a priest. So we'd actually end up with a lot of the same problems as the last point, wouldn't we? The Levitical priesthood would still be in force. I would be out of a job. I wouldn't be stood here this morning, because I'm not a descendant of Levi. I can't stand up the front. Instead, we'd be probably meeting on Friday night, and you'd have somebody who was a Levite teaching you the Bible. We'd be bringing bulls and sheep to church to sacrifice them. Uh, we'd need a butcher probably more than a priest, wouldn't we, for our, our situation. And you'd have a priest rather than a pastor. So the Bible teaches, doesn't it, in the New Testament that we're all priests. We have a great high priest. But I'm, I'm not a priest any more than you guys are. But it would also mean that we couldn't draw near to God. We wouldn't have this better hope. Instead, we'd be left outside. In fact, actually, probably we wouldn't be meeting on a Friday night, would we? Because actually, I imagine most of us here are Gentiles. We'd have to have become Jewish uh, to join in. We'd be kept outside if we hadn't, unless we were prepared to become Jewish. Even then, we wouldn't be granted full status as citizens, equal with each other. It would suck. That's to put it mildly. But this is a reminder then that what we do have It's a reminder that we can draw near to God. In fact, we are told to draw near to God. If you see James 4 verse 8 at the bottom of your, uh, at the back of your notice sheets. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. If God seems a million miles away from you this morning, you can draw near to God. That's the amazing truth of the new covenant of our great high priest. We can meet him in his word. So far from being millions of miles away from from where we are this morning, actually, it's where a lot of us are, isn't it? Where we are quite a lot. We need to draw near to God. Because so often we feel far away from him. But the encouragement of this passage is that because of Jesus, we can. We don't have to go for a priest. We don't have to go through a system of laws and legal things. We can draw near to God through Christ. So we do have a better hope. We do have a better covenant. We do have a great high priest. So we mustn't go back to what we were before. We mustn't go back into empty religion. Because here is where we can find peace with God and forgiveness. Here is where we can draw near to God. Here is where we can look to our great high priest who isn't weak and useless. But powerful and effective. Effective to save us from death. By his death, effective to keep effective to keep us from falling back into our old life, and effective in bringing our prayers before the throne of God above. Well, let's come before His throne now as we pray. Father God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that He is our great High Priest. Father, thank you that he's greater than Abraham, he's greater than Melchizedek, he's greater than anything in the whole of our universe. Father, pray that you would help us to draw near to you through him, not on the basis of our own works, of our own goodness, but on the basis of him, our high priest, who brings us into your presence. Father, thank you for him and pray that we would trust in him, Father, when we've had a week where we feel weak and useless, Father. Thank you that it doesn't depend on our righteousness, but on his 
And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.